0: Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you. And on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the latest Time in the Market podcast, where this week we turn to Japan to discuss the appeal or not of Japanese assets, equities, bonds, uh, and the currency. And here to share his wisdom, we're delighted to welcome Gary Evans, the Chief Global Asset Allocation Strategist at BCA Research. Gary, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I always like talking about Japan. Okay, well, it's, uh, we look forward to talking to you about it. It's certainly a pleasure to have you with us. And, and also, I want to quickly thank BCA for their sort of ongoing support of this podcast. For those less familiar with BCA uh, Research, it's a macro research firm that this host holds in the highest regard, indeed. Now, I would encourage you, if you can, to get a hold of their Mr. X annual outlook piece, which is coming out uh, towards the end of the month. Well worth a look and give you an insight into the quality of the work that BCA Research does. But anyway, pivoting back to Gary. And so sort of want to spare your blushes as it relates to your glittering CV. But quickly, you know, you did spend quite some time working in Japan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I actually
1: studied Japanese at university. I then became a financial journalist. And then when I moved into financial markets as a strategist, my first job 1998 to 2003, which ages me a bit, was the Japan strategist at, at HSBC. So, you know, I, I continue to follow the market closely. You know, I, I go there a couple of times a year. I'm going to be there in December, in fact. Still a very interesting place. You know, caveat might be that because I've watched it so long, it probably does make me skeptical about Japan. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this idea that corporate governance is suddenly magically changing in Japan. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic. You know, you'll find a lot of people look at Japan are probably a bit more optimistic about changes than I am.
0: OK, well, you've set the scene for what's more to come for this uh, this conversation. Um, and But it's great to get to uh, get some context. But before we interrogate you further on that and your view on Japanese assets, uh, we do open with our prefer or defer round. Ten questions where you give us your preferred option or if it's really too tricky, you can defer. But it sets us up nicely for the conversation. OK, you ready, Gary? Right. I'm ready. Yep. Okay, let's begin. Equities or bonds? Uh, Bonds. Developed markets or emerging markets? Developed markets. Uh, S&P or Nikkei? S&P.
1: Value or growth? Uh, Neutral. So I guess that's a defer. Okay. Large cap or small cap? Large cap. Yen or dollar? Yen over 12 months. Treasuries or JGBs? Depends on your currency. If you are a uh, you're you're fully hedging
0: your FX exposure, JGBs. Okay, Oil or gold? Uh, Oil. Abenomics or trussonomics? (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, yeah, Abenomics, if it was ever really put into effect properly.
0: Karaoke or dance floor? Uh, if I'm really pushed, Karaoke, definitely okay. not the dunk. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thanks, Gary. You're such a good sport and uh, also giving us plenty to work with there. And we'll now at last pivot to the main event. But before, again, sort of getting into the weeds of Japanese assets and their appeal or not, uh, can you just yeah. sort of set the scene on Japan's current sort of growth and inflationary conditions, A, a sort of a broad opener, but uh, any summary on that? Yeah, so growth is a bit
1: sluggish, to be honest. You know, Japan is not in a recession like Germany and probably, frankly, the UK are. But it's not resilient and still doing well like the US is. I mean, if you look at the data, the latest GDP number we had out last week, Q3 was down 2.1 percent quarter on quarter annualized with everything negative, capex, government expenditure, consumption flat The PMIs, which are a a good snapshot of the economy, manufacturing 48.7, services 51.6, so they're holding up a little bit better. Tourism is coming back, which is a help. So nothing really to write home about on the economy. On inflation... It depends on whether you think inflation is a good thing or not. And the Bank of Japan, I think, does think it's a good thing because they've been trying for 20 years to get inflation back to 2%. They've achieved that. The uh, headline inflation rate is 3.0 year on year. If you look at core inflation, and a little bit careful about the data in Japan, because the the core only excludes energy. But if you take out food and energy, and you just look at Tokyo, which we get out a month earlier, it's 2.7. So it's sort of where the Bank of Japan would actually rather like it. And one of the key things, we'll probably get back to this, is inflation expectations have not yet risen to the 2%. So inflation is a bit above 2. It's probably coming off a bit. The
0: Bank of Japan would like it, frankly, to stay above 2 for a bit longer. OK, well, thanks for setting the theme there. And then if that sort of pivot then to monetary policy and we're all pretty familiar with yield curve control. But it would be interesting to get your take on, on what it is and what it's trying to achieve. And of course, it's been in the news recently, uh, what, what would appear some relaxation of yield curve control. But sometimes it's difficult to read these things accurately. So you know, what, what is it, what it's about and, and what have been the changes of late? Yeah. So yield curve control is simply that
1: as well as controlling short term interest rates like any other central bank does, the Bank of Japan for a few years now has also been controlling having a a range of target rates for the 10 year Japanese government bond. That was plus or minus 25 basis points until last December. They then raised that to 50. The new governor, when he came in, I forget exactly the month, mid-year, sort of made it a bit fuzzy. So they're now saying it's not really a target, but it's a rough guide, 100 basis points. Um, And we're we're currently about 75, 80 basis points. So interest rates have risen from basically pretty much zero a year ago to now around about 80 basis points. So there's been some, some tightening of monetary policy from that point of view. But one of the key things about Japan is, of course, where the Fed has raised rates, 530 basis points, every other central bank around the world has been raising short-term policy rates. The Bank of Japan still has rates at minus 0.1%. So it's the only place in in the world. So a lot of debate about whether the yield curve control will end. It's certainly been distorting the government bond market. The Bank of Japan owns now more than half of all outstanding bonds Its it's ownership of Japanese government bonds is is more than 100% of GDP because they've mainly bought 10 years. The yield curve has got this kink in it at 10 years. So I think that they would like to get rid of it, but they're not that convinced yet that inflation
0: expectations have been brought back to that 2% level that they would like to like to see. Okay, well, I guess we'll get on to that subject then of inflation expectations and how that might impact. (laughs) Monetary policy. Obviously, you might want to draw in Japanese growth conditions, and, and of course, I know Japan won't operate in a bubble. That how dependent it is on on global growth conditions. So, yeah, what are your what are your expectations for Japanese growth and and inflation, and how that might impact policy? You know, yield curve control uh, abolition. Yeah. So growth
1: is very dependent on the global cycle. Japan is a big manufacturing economy, relatively dependent on exports, particularly dependent on China. So our view is that we are most likely some point next year heading into a global recession. So Japan is quite a cyclical market from that point of view. Depends a little bit on what happens to to China. Japan's exports to China have been pretty weak. China has not done the sort of stimulus I think people were expecting, didn't rebound post the COVID reopening in ways that people would have thought. And just to give you a number to show it's important for Japan is that before COVID, uh, you had a, a million Chinese tourists per month coming into Japan. This year, it's recovered a bit, but still only about 300,000. Now, hopefully that will pick up, but also for Japanese exporters like the machine uh, tool sector, so you know, construction machinery, robots, China is a very big market indeed. So you know, our view, I think, would be that growth is going to be a bit weak next year in Japan, as it's going to be globally, probably doesn't have as big a recession as, for example, the euro area could have. And that's therefore very important for inflation. And now, as I mentioned, inflation is running above 2, but if you look at the inflation expectations, you can see those in the CPI swaps market or the inflation-linked bonds, the 10-year inflation expectations are still only around 1.2, 1.3. So the Bank of Japan, after 25 years of disinflation, even deflation in Japan, has still not got into people's heads that they are going to achieve that 2 percent inflation target. So that's, I think, really key for the BOJ. You know, they are not going to significantly tighten policy until they've got those inflation expectations at their target 2 percent level.
0: So what what are we seeing on wages then? That always seems to be such a crucial determinant, well, globally, in terms of how inflation moves. But it seems as though it's sort of quite a difficult thing to budge in Japan. But aren't, aren't there some yeah. encouraging numbers in relation to wages?
1: No, I mean, they've been up and down a bit this year. But the last data on wage growth, I think it must have been September, was 1.2% year-on-year year nominal. So with inflation running at 3%, real wages are in significantly in negative territory. And that's actually a political issue that the government has to call a general election over something like the next 12 months. Prime Minister Kishida just came out a couple of weeks ago with some fairly chunky sounding tax cuts. So the issue in Japan, as you sort of alluded to, Ben, is, is that wages tend to be pretty sticky because still quite a large part of the workforce has lifetime employment. If you're working for a large company as an employee, you know have have no pricing power. You can't go to your boss and say, look, I'm fed up here. I'm going to go somewhere else because companies typically don't hire people mid-career like that. So that's, I think, the problem. Every year in the spring, you have this so-called Shinto spring offensive where the labor unions go to the trade federations, business owners federations and push for higher wages. The government is behind that but it still hasn't really worked. So 1.2% year on year wage growth is is pretty disappointing frankly.
0: Okay, so the growth outlook doesn't look that encouraging. Inflationary expectations you don't seem that moved by. And therefore yeah. I would suspect that you don't think yield curve control will be abandoned or that monetary policy is going to tighten too dramatically. Now, I would suggest that a lot of investors out there who are macro investors might actually be short JGBs betting on Japanese bond prices going down, yields rising, on the back of like an inflationary story and the, the as I said, the abandoning of yield curve control. Do you sense the consensus uh, is in that camp or a, there's a building consensus in that camp? And would you advise them against such a move?
1: Yeah, so I think you're right that the consensus believes that YCC, yield curve control will, will be scrapped. And uh, I think that's possible. I mean, they have to a degree already scrapped it. I mean, they've now got this sort of guidance level. So they like interest rates to be tenure those be zero with a sort of range of plus or minus 100 basis points. That's hardly really controlling it anymore. And frankly, if we're in the sort of global environment that I talked about next year with a recession, Bond yields everywhere are going to be falling, you know, as they have been for the last couple of weeks. You know, we've gone for the 10-year US from five to four point four, and the Japanese yields come down in line with that. So, you know, the pluses and minuses on JGBs. I mean, first of all, in a recession, we would argue US bond yields probably get back to two to two and a half. That's the amount they normally fall in a recession. Well, Japanese ones probably just go below zero. So the amount of decline, therefore the amount of capital gain is a lot less. There's a lot less, obviously, carry, you know, if you're getting 80 basis points in Japan versus four and a half percent in the US. But one thing worth bearing in mind, though, and that's why I was sort of hedging your uh, quick fire round at the beginning, is when you think about the FX hedging and most people buy government bonds and they fully hedge their FX exposure. If if you're, for example, a US dollar based investor, so you're getting 4.5 on uh, US Treasury yields. You know, Japanese yields technically are 08 but if you actually hedge your FX exposure by Japanese government bonds, you're getting 6.7. So because of the way the hedging works, it can be quite attractive. So I, I would probably sort of neutralish on JGBs. Depends what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, at the moment you're getting actually quite a nice running yield as long as you're he- fully hedging those FX exposures.
0: Okay. Well, let, let's uh, explore currency a little further yeah. and whether that you think that's sort of a, a sensible thing to do hedging you know do you think it's worth hedging your currency or do you think maybe the yen has some utility it's worth getting the yen exposure in a recessionary environment Yeah, no i think it is and two bases i mean number one
1: is the yen is typically a safe haven currency in recessions it typically strengthens and and the simple reason for that is just interest rate differentials as I showed you the numbers before in the next recession US yields are going to fall a lot more than Japanese yields because the Japanese yields are so low already so that shift means that money will flow into Japan there's just a, you know less decline in bond yields and then if you look at the longer term story the dollar looks very overvalued against everything on a trade-weighted basis. U.S. dollar is probably about 35 percent overvalued, but it looks but particularly like that um, against the yen. So if if you look at the IMF's estimate of the purchasing power parity for the yen, not 91. We're at about 150 today. So you know we're, we're sort of 60 percent undervalued on the yen. And that's one of the reasons why the economy, if anything, has held up OK, because exports have done very well. Companies' earnings have benefited from that weekend, and those tourists going to Japan, you go there. it's a really cheap tourist destination at the moment. So I, I think the yen looked very good value as a safe haven in a recession. Okay.
0: We'll move on to sort of stock markets now. And as you sort of said yeah. in your your background, as your time in Japan has given you some scepticism about, the prospect for improving governance, we will come back to that subject, but if you can sort of park yeah. that to a degree for, for this question, it just relates to your view as a global asset allocator yeah. on the appeal of Japanese stock markets, you know how is it stacking up on a valuation basis, how is it looking relative to other markets, and what are you doing about it?
1: Yeah. So we're punchline first. We're neutral and have been for a couple of years because I I thought we probably would get a rally in Japan. And you, you see very often people are structurally underweight. Japan, it's been a consistent chronic underperformer for the last 20 years. Foreign investors always have it underweight. And then something changes and you, you see many people have to buy Japan just to sort of close their big underweight. So we saw it, for example, in 2013 at the beginning of Abenomics when Kuroda became BOJ governor and started pushing out liquidity, at, et cetera. So what's happened this year is that the, the Topics uh, Index, which is the one people tend to look at, actually, rather than the Nikkei, is up 25 percent in local currency terms. Now, that is, of course, offset by the weakness of the currency. The yen is down 15% year to date, but nonetheless, we're up 10% in dollar terms. And this is the first year since 2013 that the Japanese market has actually outperformed global stocks or or US stocks. So the neutral, I think, has been about, about right. And the argument for it now is that as I said at the beginning, Japan is the only central bank that has not raised rates. We've still got very loose liquidity in Japan. You know, That's obviously one of the reasons why we've had the weak yen. And you know, it's, the yen is, of course, a bit of a double-edged sword. If we do get that stronger yen next year because of the yen being a safe haven currency, you know, that's going to hurt Japanese companies' earnings a bit. But on the other hand, if you're in the Japanese market, you get the upside because it's in it's in yen and and you benefit from the stronger yen. So I, I think neutral is probably still the 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 place to 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 be for Japan. I wouldn't bet on it, but I also think it's probably a fairly decent place to be in what looks like dif- a difficult environment. And in terms of valuations, I mean the story is fairly simple. The, the U.S. is on 19 times forward P P. The rest of the world is on 11 to 13 times. Japan is within that as well. You know, everything looks cheap compared to the US, but maybe those other things, including the euro area, are cheap for a reason. I would put Japan in that category too.
0: OK, and moving to the subject then of, of sort of corporate governance and maybe efforts to improve profitability, you know, what sort of progress or have you seen or, or what evidence would you cite to demonstrate lack of progress, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I mean, and stop me, Ben, if I've got too much of a B in my bonnet about this, because you know I've I've heard this story so often in Japan that somehow Japanese companies have got the message that they believe in returns to shareholders. That there's going to be a very active M&A market in Japan. I mentioned I was a Japan strategist in 1998 to 2003. The first report I ever wrote in 1998 was on buybacks and how they were going to really change the Japanese market. 25 years on, if you look at that. They have picked up a bit, but not very much. So I'm not saying nothing has changed. You know, companies now have to have at least one external director. So most of them have a couple. But when you look at what actually matters, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you if you look at ROE for the, the Japanese listed market, at the peak recently, um, so like everywhere else, earnings peaked, it, it was less than 9%. The peak in 2007, before the global financial crisis, was 9%. So, you know, in what is that, 15 years, we haven't seen any trend increase in return on equity at all. If you look at things like the, the dividend payout ratio, for example, so if companies, companies are sitting on massive amounts of cash, the dividend payout ratio is still only 35%. Low growth economies like Japan should be more like 50 to 60%. So I think when you look at corporate governance, you know, I, I see some some really stupid reports coming out. And, and remember, most people who talk about Japan have got to be cheerleaders. You know, they're either fund managers managing Japanese money or they're Japan strategists. Of course they're going to talk the story up. So the narrative this year has been that the new chairman of the Tokyo Stock Exchange is going to name and shame is the headline, companies that don't do something about getting their price to book ratio above one. So half of the companies in Japan have a, a price to book below one. PB is very often closely related to ROE, et cetera. But he's not naming and shaming. What he's doing is saying that any company that has a price to book of less than one should put in its uh, annual report a paragraph about what it's doing to try to improve that. Um, and he's published a list of companies that have put that paragraph in their annual report. So it's a positive list. You know, you can work out from it therefore which ones have not. But you know, Japanese companies are past masters of knowing what to say to investors. You know, ESG, they've been talking about. You know, when I was in Japan 20 years ago, you know, they all had an ROE target. So to me, the bottom line here is we still don't have m a in Japan. We still have companies sitting on far too much cash. There are some amazingly good value companies. I mean, just to quote you one example Keisei Electric Railway, which if you ever go to Narita Airport, runs the trains from Narita Airport into Tokyo. Uh, It owns a stake in a company called Oriental Land, which operates Tokyo Disneyland. Tokyo Disneyland is very, very successful. Its stake is worth twice the market cap of Keisei Electric Railway. You imagine that a stake is worth twice as much as the whole market cap. So you could buy KC Railway, sell off the Oriental land stock and still got a bunch of money left over. Why doesn't that happen? There isn't M&A in Japan. You, you, you can't take that company over. So that's the problem. There's still never really been a successful hostile M&A bid. It's very rarely even that companies have an offer and they sell out for a higher price than their current stock price. So I know I'm ranting a bit here, but I just don't see signs that Japanese companies are moving that rapidly in the direction of the sort of corporate
0: governance that you get in places like the US. Well, I wish you wouldn't sit on the fence on these sorts of subjects, Gary, but I still appreciate uh, the answer. Okay. look, well, Look. if our audience is compelled to or indeed perhaps sort of forced to through allocations to make an investment in Japan, do you have any preference on how they might want to allocate that, be it domestic, focused, external, focused, whether it should be hedged or not, large cap, small cap, any biases you you would, would suggest in Japanese equity investing? Yeah. So I think
1: there's a couple of clear areas. I mean, one is
0: small caps.
1: You can see that the performance of Japanese small caps has consistently been better than the large caps. So they suffer a lot less in aggregate from those problems I mentioned earlier. I mean, often there's a small company uh, still run by its founder with a little niche in some technology, you know, special coatings that go on semiconductors they're still focused on making money they haven't over diversified like the big conglomerates have you know, finding the right ones is obviously a problem but you know a talented small cap fund manager i think can find some some really op- interesting opportunities in japan uh, you know particularly in niche tech sectors and some of the larger caps in those areas as well can be quite interesting you know i mentioned earlier the exposure to china for things like robotics construction machinery there's some very good companies in japan in in those sort of areas as as well And then the final one I would mention would be, you know, I do think that some of those corporate governance plays will be in the spotlight. You've got, in fact, you've had for 20 years activist investors going into Japan. You know, when I was uh, working there, they were probably a bit too ham-fisted. You know, Japanese culture is not one where you can go in and bang the table. You have to work behind the scenes. I think some of those activist hedge funds have understood that now. And so, you know, looking selectively at the sort of companies like the example I gave earlier, where you know, they are tremendously undervalued. And and maybe you can see some signs that a new chief executive or a a new set of shareholders is pushing them into the direction of releasing value. Those are probably worth looking for as well, I think.
0: Okay. And without being sort of too blue sky, what sort of conditions, realistic, not not as in necessarily your core view, but what, what are potentially sort of realistic conditions that could play out that could really get Japanese equities firing? So I think what I would look at would be, you
1: know, those those signs of of real improvement in corporate governance that I mentioned earlier. And what would be behind that, I think, would be if two things really. One, if we start to see Japanese institutional investors genuinely looking at companies, from a dispassionate point of view, um voting against directors who were were not uh, releasing cash. I mean, there are lots of Japanese companies with far too much cash. you know why are they allowed to get away with that? well they the, the the big japanese asset management firms typically are not very aggressive and that's partly because they want to win the corporate pension business of those sort of firms the regulators in japan understand that issue they've had all these corporate governance codes hasn't really worked yet but if i was to see institutional investors genuinely starting to put pressure japanese ones putting pressure on companies um that would help i think the second thing would be individual investors Retail investors in Japan still see the stock market as as a bit of a punt. You know, they'll, they'll buy the latest themes. It's a short-term way of making money. It's like going to the horses. There's not much concept that, you know, you put your life savings in stocks. It's still something like 50% of household savings are left in the post office or in bank deposit accounts. And the government is increasingly trying to do things about that. So they have taken from the UK the idea of ISAs. Uh, individual savings accounts. So Nippon ISIS is what they call them in Japan, NISA. They're just increasing that to $25,000 a year or so. So you better put that money into a uh, nicer $25,000 a year without having to pay any tax on that. Now, it's still no signs that individuals have really understood that. Again, I think it comes back to the fund management industry, which tends to emphasize the latest trend, the latest sort of buzz fund, rather than telling people, you know, you need to be in the market for your life. That's the way to to really get a good return. So those two things, institutional investors change their attitude towards corporate governance and individuals starting to see equities as a stable long term place to store your money and, and make long term healthy returns.
0: Okay. Uh, well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye out for those potential developments. Although I suggest you might not think they'll be be immediate. But uh, really enjoyed that, Gary. Really insightful stuff. I mean, great to talk to you. I mean, if our audience wants to keep an eye on how your views develop, you know, get onto the BCA website, get in touch with the relationship manager. I'm sure that will help you follow your views. I think you can be reached out to on LinkedIn as well. Other than that, you know, thank you so much for your time. Thank our audience for being with us. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. Goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park Perpetual Park Drive, Henley on Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.